New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he asked the question, what if the people called to carry Jesus' light into the world are themselves infected with darkness? That's a good question to wrestle with. What if the people called to carry Jesus' light into the world are themselves infected with darkness? Over the last number of weeks, as we've observed the behavior of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we've been wrestling with that very same question. This group of people called to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. They drifted away from their calling, so much so that when the very image of the invisible God walked among them, they were unable to see him for who he was. Blinded by their own self-righteousness and ethnocentrism, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day failed to see their own need for God's grace. And worse, when that grace was extended to the least of these, their self-righteousness prevented them from celebrating God's forgiveness and his mercy. This morning, we're going to see that same story play out However, as we continue digging and searching out the depths of God's grace, we will learn that while grace unleashes the light of God's mercy and forgiveness into the darkness of sinful humanity, it doesn't leave us there. In fact, it sets us free, and the freedom entrusted to us, right, and, and it is, it's a freedom that's entrusted to us. I think sometimes we, 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 we look at the gospel, we look at this concept of we've been freed from sin, and we don't get that it's actually something that's been entrusted to us that we're now responsible for, right? We've been, we've been watching the, the Spider-Man movies, the early ones from like the 2000s with, with our kids, and, and, and you know the line, right? With great power comes great responsibility, right? And that's kind of the idea of, of being a follower of Jesus. We've been entrusted with a freedom that now calls us to something. It sets us free to walk as disciples of King Jesus, embodying his teachings, teachings that when received in faith through the power of the Holy Spirit, they change us and conform us to the image of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 8. We're going to be jumping in at verse 31. I feel like everyone's like sad today. Is everyone sad today? Is it just it? Everyone's tired? I mean, I'm tired too, so I'm not like, like putting any shame on anybody. But man, it's like I feel the, the exhaustion in the room. Tired and sad. Okay, cool. All right, good, good. That's good. Well, hopefully that'll change. Um, all right, so Jesus is still at the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's been in conversation with the Pharisees and the religious leaders throughout the course of the feast. In our passage last week, we saw that Jesus identified himself as the light of the world and the great I am. In other words, Jesus is identifying himself as one, the servant from Isaiah. We talked a little bit about that last week. The fulfillment of everything Israel was called to be. And three, Israel's covenant-keeping God who met with Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. So these are lofty claims. But what we learn in verse 30 from last week is that many believed in him. In other words, there's a significant number of people 
thinking to themselves as they're listening to Jesus, maybe even talking with one another, I think this is the guy. I think this might be the Messiah. And so Jesus jumps at this opportunity to talk with them about what belief or faith looks like in the life of a disciple. Look at verse 31 with me in verse 32. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now check this out. Who's he talking to? Verse 31 tells us he's talking to the the Jewish people who had believed in him, those people from verse 30. Right, so these are people who claim to buy into what Jesus is selling. And, and there's no like different word here. This is the word for belief in the New Testament. He says that true disciples are those who abide or remain in his word. In other words, that's great, you believe in me, but are you willing to abide in or hold to what I teach? And so right away, Jesus is drawing a line between belief and discipleship. This isn't new ground for Jesus. This theme shows up back in chapter 2, where many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but because Jesus knew all the people, he knew that their belief was shallow, so much so that he was unwilling to entrust himself to them. Fickle faith is a theme that, that kind of flows throughout the course of John's gospel, but there's more going on here. And I believe the best way to engage is to dig deeper into some of Jesus' teachings. If you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And I want to read through verses 1 through 8, which is the parable of the sower. And then we're going to read through verses 18 through 23, where Jesus interprets the parable. And I have a slide for this if you don't have your Bibles with you. It says, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got in the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed some seeds, as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, it seems not many people had ears, and so he explains the parable in verse 18 and following. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case 60, and in another 30. The ultimate point that Jesus is getting at in this passage is that there are different ways in which people receive his teachings. First way is that some people just can't understand it. 
Some people are incapable of wrapping their minds around the fact that we live in a world of sin, but we also live in a world created and loved by God. So much so that he sent his son to come and rescue us from that brokenness. Right? But that message of the cross, the scriptures tell us it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Some people understand the teachings of Jesus, and they actually love it. Like, they're all in. It says, right, they receive it with joy. But the minute it starts to get difficult, the minute that their belief requires something of them, the minute their belief requires something of them, Jesus says that these people immediately fall away. Right? We, we just talked about that a few minutes ago, that, that, that this freedom that we're entrusted with, this gift of faith, this gift of, of following Jesus, it does require something of us. It does require something of us. Then there are those who hear the teachings of Jesus, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches make it impossible to cling to them. Right? The cares of the world. Things like the endless pursuit of wealth and pleasure. Chasing the promises of romantic fulfillment that it will completely satisfy us. Political and cultural activism. One obsession, our obsession with being informed, 24-hour news cycles, Twitter feeds, etc., right? These are the cares of the world. These are the deceitfulness of riches that just kind of get in the way. They're distractions, ultimately. The point that Jesus is making in this parable, and the point he's making in our text in John 8, is that following him means accepting both who he is and what he's calling us to. Following Jesus means accepting who he is and what he's calling us to. Um, one scholar, and I have a slide for this, says it like this, Klein Snodgrass, which is such a cool name. He says, to be a disciple of the kingdom means hearing and remaining focused on the message of the kingdom in such a way that one is defined by it. That one is defined by it. And so what that means is that we not only receive the forgiveness, mercy, and the Holy Spirit of God, and all of the other benefits secured for us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we must also allow these received gifts by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ. Like Something actually starts to happen in us. That when we entrust ourselves to King Jesus, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we start to be conformed to the image of Christ, an image that cares about holiness, how we use our bodies, how we use our words, how we use technology, our smartphones. It's an image that upholds mercy and compassion, how we engage with the least of these. Those struggling with addiction, with sin, carrying loads they just simply cannot manage to carry. It's also an image that sacrificially loves and gives of itself so that others might go free. Do we believe that it is actually more blessed to give than to receive? Do we believe that the pattern of this world is such that giving of ourselves for the good of others leads to flourishing, and draws us into deeper communion with God. Do we believe that? 
Do we believe that? What Jesus is basically saying is that it's great that you believe. That's great. Gold star for the day. But if your beliefs don't actually change who you are, how you live, and how you relate to the world around you, then your beliefs don't mean anything. Tracking with that? If they don't actually change you, they don't mean anything. Now look at what it says in verse 32. It says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So abiding, remaining, holding to, being defined by the teachings of Jesus, not only is that the mark of what a true disciple is, but it's also the pathway to freedom. It's also the pathway to freedom. In other words, when we hold the teachings of Jesus, teachings summarized in the Sermon on the Mount, Teachings marked by cross-shaped, self-denying, sacrificial love, humility, and genuine care for others. Jesus said, you'll be set free. You'll be set free. Which, that might be confusing to some of us, that, that when we submit to a law, we'll be free. Right? When we submit to a law, we'll be free. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get to that in just a second, so kind of hold that thought. But that's what Jesus is proposing. If you abide in, if you remain in, if you hold to my teachings, you will be free. Now, when the Jews who had believed in him heard these words, they were a little confused, and they were particularly confused at this idea of being set free. See, in their minds, they were offspring of Abraham, who have never been enslaved to anyone, the text says. Now, most likely, they're not talking about political subjugation. Jewish people, they know their history. They know their present predicament, their present political predicament, living under the thumb of Roman authority. D.A. Carson argues that it's much more probable that they're talking about spiritual inward freedom and privilege, which makes their response even worse. I hear it like this. Jesus, we're children of Abraham. When it comes to our religion, we're good. Our spiritual heritage is secure. It's our physical lives that we need you for. Now go ahead and be a good Messiah and take care of this Rome thing for us. What the Jewish people were looking for, and it makes sense, they were living under political oppression. They were looking for a political Messiah, one who would put Caesar in his place and exalt Israel to its rightful position. Redeemer, we have a tendency to do similar things. And we need to be careful. Over and over again throughout John's gospel, it is overwhelmingly clear that appropriating Jesus for a political platform misses the point of why he came and what he established the church for, which is to seek and save the lost. And worse, when we do this, when we appropriate Jesus for a political platform, we are putting forth into the world both a distorted and an idolatrous picture of who Jesus is. 
That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing because it's not why Jesus came. The scriptures are so clear. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And we need to be so careful that we don't use Jesus to accomplish our own will. Let's keep reading. Verse 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin or persists in sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. A couple things that pop out there. Jesus says that a life marked by persistent and habitual sin, right? That's what it means in verse 34. Everyone who commits sin, um, your versions might say everyone who persists in sin or everyone who practices sin. The idea is not that like, oh, I, I, I sinned today and so therefore I'm a slave to sin. No, the idea is that if you continue and persist in sin, the same sorts of sins over and over again with no regard for what you're doing, you are a slave. You're a slave to sin. And so basically, it doesn't matter what our spiritual, or in their case, their ethnic pedigree is. It doesn't matter that they have Abraham's blood running through their veins. That's not what's setting them free. He then says in verse 37, I know you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Another way to understand what Jesus is saying is, I know you claim to be the people of God. Like, I get what you're saying, but my cross-shaped teaching, it doesn't fit into your vision of what the world should be. Right? That's what it says. It finds no place in you. Like, it doesn't fit. Like, like Jesus' teaching, Jesus' way of life, his, his self-giving love, his cross-shaped life, his, his humility, his, 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 hospitality, his hospitality, his opening up the table to both Jew and Greek, it, it doesn't fit into their worldview. It doesn't fit into the way they think life should be. Doesn't fit. Doesn't fit. He then takes it a step further. I'm trying to tell you something, basically what he's saying, about the things I've seen in the presence of my Father. But you who claim to be of God, you do things that resemble an entirely different family tree. Right? He says it right there in verse 38. I speak of what I've seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. And so he's setting up a distinction here. I've said this a few times now over the course of the last number of weeks, how easy it is for us to borrow or steal tools and weapons of the enemy to do what we believe the work of God is. But as followers of Jesus, the ends never justify the means. Never as followers of Jesus. And the weapons of the kingdom will always be kindness, mercy, compassion, and self-giving love, regardless of our opponent. 
regardless of our opponent. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, love your enemies. And and the sort of love that he talks about when he says love your enemies, because we like to look at like, well, what's the Greek word for love? Like maybe it's not one that actually forces me to do something, right? It's it's that same self-giving sort of love. It's that same, you know, agape sort of love. The same love with which Jesus loves the world with. The same love that pushed Jesus to the cross. It's that kind of love. And so like I said, the ends never justify the means and the weapons of the kingdom will always be kindness, mercy, compassion, and self-giving love regardless of our opponents. We got to let that sink in. And that's a wrestling match for us as followers of Jesus. It's a wrestling match for us because, you know, like I've said in the past, we, we might be saints, but we speak with the accent of sinner. And so that old man is still kind of reaching up and trying to have its way with us. And, and the more we allow ourselves to, to kind of keep in step with that old nature, the harder it is to abide in, to hold to, to remain in the teachings of God the teachings of Christ. So we got to fight this. This is hard. This is hard. And, and we have to be careful that we don't just say, like, okay, like, when I think of sin, I think of just this category. No, no. Think of this category. Allow God to work. And then, and then, and then there's another category. And then there's another category. And guess what? Until the day we die, we're going to be wrestling with categories of sin in our lives. And so we don't stop. We keep fighting, but the way we fight is by pursuing Christ, by by abiding in his word, by being with his people, by by practicing those works that that he's laid out before us. These are means of grace. This is the way God grows us, sanctifies us, draws us nearer to him, enables us to be in deeper communion with him. When we do these things in faith, God shows up. He shows up. We're going to talk a little bit about, like, if I'm preaching, you know, uh, a salvation of works sort or of thing. I'm not. We'll get to that in a few minutes. The important thing, right, and we talk about this when we come to the table, that when we partake of the bread and the wine, is it, it's, it's, there's nothing magical about it, but when we participate in faith, God shows up. God shows up. And he nourishes us. When we read this book and meditate on this book in faith, God shows up. When we come to church to be with one another and worship Jesus in faith, God shows up. When we serve the needs of others, which this church does so well, when we do it in faith, God shows up. And he draws us near to him. And he slowly, over time, over a lifetime, conforms us to the image of his son. That's good news. That's good news. Let's keep going. Verse 39. The back and forth continues. Check it out. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, 
We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Right? So they say, Abraham is our father. Jesus says, can't be. Can't be because if Abraham was your father, you'd be doing his works. What are the works that Abraham did? Right? They were works of faith. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, he says it like this, and I have a slide. When Abraham received the word of God, he believed it, and he left the security of his own people to follow God's call. Likewise, those who hear the word of God in Jesus should believe it and abandon the security of their own social position, risking rejection by their own people. Believe it and abandon the security of their own social position. Faith requires something of us. What else did Abraham do? He also practiced hospitality in Genesis 18. He also prayed for the people of Sodom. Yeah. And in an act of absolute trust and faithfulness, he was willing to lay down the life of his only son Isaac, whom he loved. Abraham, and, and here's the key, Abraham heard the word of God, then in faith received it and defined his life by it. He heard the word of God, in faith he received it and defined his life by it. But now, when God through Jesus speaks to Abraham's offspring, instead of receiving the word in faith, they seek to kill him. Why? Because Jesus' message, his teaching, his calling, it was incompatible with what they wanted. It found no place in them. It found no place in them. The problem, and it's the problem we all struggle with, is that this group of supposed believers, and that's the word, those who believe, who might even acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, they want a God, a Messiah, who does their will, who serves their purposes, who sanctions their vision of what the world should be like. See, the problem, though, when we hear a message like this, is that we see in our minds someone who is out there, Right? We hear this, and we don't necessarily think of ourselves. We're inclined to pile all sorts of people and groups into the bucket labeled, they don't take the word of God seriously. But what if, what if the spotlight is shining on us? What if we're the ones who want Jesus to serve our purposes, do our will, sanction our vision for what the world should be like, whether it's a political vision, a moral vision, a spiritual or theological vision. The question we need to wrestle with is whether what we are running after, if it lines up with the teachings and character of who Jesus is. That's what we need to keep sifting everything through. Everything through. Not what we want the scripture to say, not what we want the word of God to teach, what it teaches, what it teaches. And what it teaches is hard. 
Because it's wrapped in self-denial, self-giving love, sacrifice, mercy, humility, all the things that every single bit of culture just kind of bucks against. So we have to wrestle. We have to wrestle with this. Let's, Let's keep reading. Verses 43 and following. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Again, I can't help but read this with, with, with a sense that Jesus is, is, is hurting in this conversation. He's, he's looking at Israel. These are his people. Remember, the Bible says he came to his own. Like, his heart's probably breaking as he looks at this group of people. The same way when, when, when we have a child who, who walks away from the faith, our heart breaks. Multiply that like a million fold, infinity fold. Is there an infinity fold? I'm not a math, I'm not a math guy. But Jesus says something important, what he's been dancing around the entire passage. The reason why you can't hear or understand what I'm saying is because you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. That's rough. Those are hard words that Jesus speaks to this group of people who claim to believe in him. Like, they believe. And he's like, nah, you don't. It breaks my heart, but the truth of the matter is you are of your father, the devil. Which means, right, who is the devil? He's a murderer, Jesus says. From the very beginning, immediately following Adam's fall, the murderous ways of the devil began permeating creation. In Genesis 4, Cain murdered his brother. He was jealous. And Lamech serenaded his wives with a song recounting how he killed a man for wounding him. Men, take notes. It's a way to woo your wife. That was a joke. He's a liar. Text says that it's his own character, which means that everything that comes out of him is nothing but lies. It's who he is. Like ontologically, the devil's a liar. And we see those lies, right? Those lies are everywhere. Lies about what human flourishing is, that if we're true to ourselves, then we'll find peace. But God says that our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, right? There's a lie that is just perpetuating throughout culture, that that we belong to ourselves, that we we can do as we please, right? Like, go, do you, right? And scripture teaches us the complete opposite. There's this wonderful book that I would highly recommend called You Are Not Your Own by a guy named Alan Noble. And he talks about this specific idea that we are just wrapped in, in, in a culture, like the cultural air we breathe is you are your own. You are your own, so 
Go have at it. Do you. Lies about how the only way to combat the cultural upheaval that we're experiencing is to pick up stones and start throwing. But God says we're called to love our enemies. Lies about how our hope and security are found in political parties and that the only hope for the church in America is if we elect the right candidate. But God says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says that we have to abide in his word and that if we do, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And so then we'll start to see the lies for what they are. And this is actually really practical. And it has a lot to do with how we use this book. Are we looking for verses and passages to justify a particular set of beliefs or... Are we allowing the word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword to have its way with us? That's the, that's the difference, right? That's the difference. Either we're searching for a way to justify whatever it is that we believe or we're receiving this by faith. And, and make no mistake, every single one of us does the former. We do. We want to justify our positions. And so if we can find a verse, we, we stand on some solid ground. Or at least we believe ourselves to be standing on solid ground. But God is saying, no, 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 receive my teachings. Receive them. Wholesale, receive them. And so that sort of thing, the receiving part, the having its way with us, the shaping us and conforming us into the image of, son and of his son, that only happens when we read this book in faith, with one another. Right? Like, we weren't meant to isolate ourselves as Christians. So many things to talk about in this passage, because so many things popped up as I was studying. Like, we're not supposed to take this book and, like, go away and, and be by ourselves. Should we read the Bible by ourselves? Sure, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not trying to condemn personal devotions. and That's not my point. But should that be the only way we receive the word of God? No, we're to, we're to work through this stuff in community with one another. The Bible says that God gave teachers to teach the word. Like, we, we, we need to trust the, the, the people who have studied this stuff. Guys, when I study for a text, like, it's not just me and my Bible. I'm, I'm texting with friends of mine who are studying the same passage. I'm searching commentaries. I'm reading through church history. Why? Because we're not supposed to just have it by ourselves and, and figure it out all on our own. No, in faith, we, tr we trust the community of faith. Why do we trust the community of faith? Because it's spirit indwelt. God's here. God's here. So it only happens when we read this book in faith with one another and understanding, this is key, that the controlling narrative of this book is a narrative marked by who Jesus reveals himself to be. And if you remember from last week, the great reveal what demonstrates to us who Jesus is in John 8, 20, 28, you have lifted, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. When we read this book through the lens of the self-giving, cross-shaped, humbling love of Almighty God, 
then it's going to start making more sense to us. That's the grid that we need to read this book through. Not a grid of, of, of American individualism. No, that's not the grid. Not the grid of, of, of trying to find the right spouse. It's not the grid. Not the grid of trying to justify one of, of my particular beliefs, whether it's moral, political, whatever the case may be. No, we read it through the grid of the self-giving, cross-shaped love of Jesus Christ. That's how he revealed himself. He didn't say that, that, that you'll know that I am when I ride in on a horse and everyone's like, whoa, look at this guy, he's awesome, that's God. No, he says when I'm lifted up, meaning when I die on a cross, then you'll know that I am God. Then you'll know that I am God. Verse 47 says this. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. God. Now this is important and it's actually really helpful because like I said before, if, if we're thinking that I'm preaching salvation by works, notice what precedes the ability to hear the words of God. It's being of God. Right? What that means is that salvation is by grace through faith. And when salvation is experienced, it changes us from the inside out. It gives us a new heart, new eyes, new ears. And the test is when we hear the teachings of Jesus, are we willing to submit ourselves to them? That's really the point of this entire passage. Like, are we willing to submit to the, the teachings of God? Whatever they might be. If not, well, Jesus says, well, then you're not of God. I'm not saying, see, the key difference here. I'm not saying that we are always submitting to the teachings of God. And if we don't, we're not of God. I'm saying if we're unwilling to, that's a key distinction, right? Because then we can get mixed up in like this whole perfectionism kind of thing that, that, that if you follow Jesus hard enough, you'll be perfect. Like the Bible's so clear about that, that that's not the case. But when scripture is put in front of you and your sin is exposed, how do you respond? Are you just kind of like, nah, I don't agree. Or are you like, okay, that's going to be hard. Those are different responses. You just tracking? That's important. True faith releases us from our enslavement to sin. And the word of Christ, his teachings, what we read in this book, both those explicit statements and the example he sets forth, it reveals to us what sin is. And there's a bunch of them. Right, there's so many sins, so many. And like you don't even need the Bible to figure out what all the sins are. You just need to like look at your week and you're just kind of like, whoa, there's a lot of sin. But when we boil it all down, the question that we all have to wrestle with is who we believe our God is and who we belong to. If we believe that we belong to ourselves, that we carve out our own destiny, that we are the captain of our own ship, then we believe ourselves to be God. And if that's the case, we will do whatever we please. If we believe that we belong to Christ and that he is the sovereign king over all of creation, then we will do whatever he pleases and calls us to do. We'll search out this book 
and by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will receive the word and repent of our sin. Sins of sexual temptation, sins of self-righteousness, sins of judgment and condemnation that we heap onto everyone who sins a little bit differently than we do, sins of political idolatry. We will become humble and teachable. We won't recoil and grow angry when we're confronted, even if that confrontation uses triggering language and comes from a source that we might be uncomfortable with. I don't know if you remember, but God spoke through the lips of a donkey when confronting Balaam. And so he might even speak through someone you don't agree with, politically, theologically, whatever. The point is that Jesus has handed us the keys to our own shackles. All we need to do is believe. And all we need to do is abide in his word, and then we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Now, the response we see in verse 48 shows us that Jesus' listeners aren't, reset, aren't ready to receive the word of God. I imagine that they're that first bit of soil who simply can't fathom the vision Jesus is putting before them. He says, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. He doesn't even mention the Samaritan thing. He's like, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Or who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say what I do not know, that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. That's a wild passage, right? They basically claim that his teachings are demonic in origin and they're calling him a Samaritan. Like, this is a racial slur. That's, what, that's what's happening here. They're claiming that he's less than, that he's a, a half-breed. In a way... I don't know if you caught this. They're taking Jesus' words that they're not Abraham's children and they are of their father, the devil, and they're saying the same thing about him. They're kind of like reversing and saying, we're not those things, you're those things. But they don't really have any evidence to support that claim. It says in verse 56 through 59, we're, we're moving a little quickly here at the end. It says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's that big I am statement. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Right, the chapter closes with Jesus identifying himself again as Yahweh. Before Abraham was, I am. And everyone listening knew exactly what he was saying. And that's why they picked up stones to throw at him. In their minds, Jesus was blaspheming God. And the punishment for blasphemy is death by stoning. Leviticus 24 says, whoever blasphemes, the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. 
all the congregation shall stone him. Now the truth of the matter, and we're closing here, is that if Jesus said all these things, and then he died and remained in the tomb, then the anger of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and everyone who opposed him would have been absolutely justified. In fact, if Jesus remained in the tomb, then following his teaching about self-giving love and mercy would be a fool's errand. His teaching on morality, sexual ethics, all of it would be utter nonsense. The entire Sermon on the Mount would and should be thrown away and discarded if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. Even Paul says, if Jesus is not raised, then we're the most to be pitied. He says, if Jesus had not been raised, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. None of it matters if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. But we live in a world where Jesus was raised from the dead. And that means we live in a world where Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, then we live in a world where self-denial, self-giving love, compassion, mercy, and humility are the bricks that make up the path to glory. They are the foundation upon which the kingdom of God is built, a kingdom born from the shed blood and broken body of Christ, a body that was broken and blood that was shed so that our idolatrous, self-centered, indifferent, callous, and arrogant, sinful selves could be forgiven and released from our enslavement so that we can walk in the hope that we are not our own, but we belong with body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in a world where resurrection has shaped the story. And we live in a world where, res where resurrection, where glory comes by way of humility, Love, mercy, compassion, self-denial. The beginning of the story started with a couple in a garden who chose to feed themselves rather than deny themselves. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be God. The story ends, or the climax of the story, is... God saying, I'm actually not going to do the thing that you all think God should do. I'm not going to use my godness to get my way because that's not how God operates. God operates by giving of himself so that we might go free. And that's the world we live in. And the reason why I know we live in that world is because the tomb is empty. If the tomb was not empty, then we don't live in that world. Then we shouldn't even be here. We should do whatever we want. But the tomb is empty. Therefore, the path to glory is humility and self-giving love and self-sacrifice. That's good news.
That's good news. This is the word of the Lord, right? Abide in this teaching. Receive this teaching. Believe this teaching, the teaching of Christ, and allow yourself to be defined by it. That it might permeate every single part of our lives. That's what freedom is. And on Pentecost Sunday, we have the Holy Spirit who helps us do it. That's good news, Redeemer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much, Lord. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that the tomb truly is empty, Father. We thank you that because of who you are, we have been freed from slavery, Lord God. We have been given life eternal, Lord, face to face with you. Father, I pray that today, Lord, anyone who is far from you, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day of repentance. Today would be the day that we get rid of that darkness and that we would be the lights of the world that you have called us to be. Help us, Lord. Help us to not be distracted, to not be fooled, to not be tempted into thinking that Christianity is something that it's not, Father, but that we would walk in faith, trusting that this upside-down way of living is actually the means by which we will see you face-to-face one day, that, when, that, that the only way to receive life is to die. God, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is reigning at your right hand, ruling over all of creation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.